Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR, and this week we are going to talk about sanctions. Over the past 20 or so years, the sanctions have become the West's diplomatic tool par excellence, faced with wars, humanitarian crises, human rights violations, dangers of proliferation. The Western response has often been to impose sanctions, partly in order to avoid resorting to military force, and increasingly because there is an almost religious belief in the in the power of, of this new generation of sanctions to achieve political goals. But can sanctions ever truly be effective? Is there a danger in the West's over-reliance on them? And will they eventually be replaced by other economic weapons? These are topics that we've been looking at for a long time at ECFR, and increasingly our work on, on geoeconomics is going to be scaling up the new colleague Tobias Gacker, who, who has recently joined to talk about that. But today I'm thrilled to welcome Agathe de Marais to discuss these issues with me. Agathe is the Global Forecasting Director of the Economist Intelligence Unit. And maybe even more importantly in this context, she's the author of a new book, well, newish book called Backfire, How Sanctions Reshape the World Against US Interests, which was published at the end of last year. Before joining the Economist Intelligence Unit, she worked as an economic advisor for the diplomatic corps of the French Treasury. Agathe, thank you so much for joining. Well, thank you so much for having me. So we're coming up to the first anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, an invasion which triggered what was meant to be the, the biggest, the most sort of monumental collection of sanctions in human history. And a lot of Western observers were surprised at the ferocity of these sanctions and were very proud of the speed with which Europeans and Americans could come together behind them. At the time, some people predicted that the Russian economy might even end up collapsing as a result of them. Other people thought that this would have a big impact on Russia's ability to, to afford and prosecute its war. In the event, uh, Russia and its economy have proved surprisingly resilient. There are all sorts of uh, problems which Russia has faced, but the total collapse of the Russian economy isn't one of them. How do you explain that? Well, I think that's a really great intro question. And I think that the key issue and the key reason why we have all of these debates about the effectiveness of sanctions against Russia is because there has never been any discussion about their objectives. And I think that this is key because if we are to assess the effectiveness of sanctions, we have to know the objectives of these sanctions. So I think that among policymakers, the goals were not a collapse of the Russian economy. I don't think that you can do that. Russia is the ninth largest economy in the world. So I think that a collapse of Venezuela was just not a realistic prospect. I also don't think that it was about regime change because there is no reason to believe that Putin's eventual successor will change course in Ukraine. And I don't think also that policymakers thought that sanctions would be a magic bullet that would completely change Russia's strategy regarding Ukraine. But the problem is 
there, we know what it wasn't about, but we don't know what it was about. I would say there were three main objectives, and against these objectives, I think that sanctions have worked. The first one, as you've said um, very well, you know, when you started talking about Russia sanctions, it was about sending a diplomatic message to Vladimir Putin, and I think that this worked extremely well. There's been huge transatlantic unity on sanctions uh, between, well, the US and the EU. I don't think that Putin expected that. I don't think he expected the freeze of half of the reserves of the, the Russian Central Bank. So diplomatic message, I would say, check. Then the second objective was about making it more difficult for Russia to wage war in Ukraine financially and technologically. And Russia was in a recession in 2022. And what is really interesting, and I put here my economist at on, is that Russia will still be in a recession in 2023. And that's very rare. Usually when a country experiences a recession in the following year, it rebounds. That's not going to be the case this year. And that will increasingly make it difficult for Russia to finance the war in Ukraine while maintaining social stability. War is expensive. Maintaining social stability is expensive. So at some point, the idea is that Russia will have to make a choice. And the same goes for Russia's technological ability to wage war because sanctions restrict Russia's access to semiconductors. That is very significant because Russia's missiles are full of semiconductors that actually use Western technology. So second objective, it's not magic bullet, but it's about making it more difficult for Russia to wage war. And finally, third objective, that's a very long-term one. That's an asphyxiation of the Russian energy sector. And actually, that dates back to 2014 sanctions. And it is about making it more difficult for Russia to develop new energy fields, especially in the Arctic by depriving Russian energy firms from Western financing and Western technology. And Russia doesn't have a solution to that. And in the long run, what that means is that Russia is set to lose its status as a global energy superpower. The latest data from the International Energy Agency showed just that. At the moment, 30% of globally traded oil and gas comes from Russia, but this share will fall to 15% by 2030. So a really tricky situation for Russia. So in your book, your subtitle is is how um, they could end up both reshaping the world sanctions, but also doing it in a way that's against US interests. Do you think that the sort of three goals which you talked about could end up being a period victory because they accelerate the, the development of a sort of post-dollar world and that one of the reasons why they haven't asphyxiated Russia in the short term is because you know, a lot of the rest of the world was, is not very sympathetic to these sanctions, but, you know, most countries are not joining in on them. The vast majority of, of, of UN member states have got nothing to do with these sanctions. Many countries have stepped up their trade with Russia post-February. Uh, and uh, I was talking to some Chinese uh, intellectuals recently, and they were talking about a kind of informal currency union between Moscow and, and Beijing with swap lines and other things which are being developed and, and also the the whole decision to for, by many countries to start using the renminbi as a way of well as a, as a kind of currency for, for for trade not just in for energy but in other areas as well well, yes, I think that's exactly the point of the book. And the parallel that I make is that sanctions are a bit like antibiotics. Essentially, they are crucial, they are critical 
uh, to Western diplomacies because they fill in the void between empty diplomatic declarations on the one hand, these are not going to impress Vladimir Putin, and on the other end of the diplomatic spectrum, you have military interventions, which are deadly, obviously. And sanctions fill in this void, and they are very important. I don't, I don't think anyone would say that sanctions do not matter well, at the moment. Some people say that, but still, I think the consensus is that sanctions are a part of the diplomatic tools that Western democracies use. But the thing is, it's like antibiotics. If you use them too much, then you have side effects and you have resistance. And that's exactly the idea of the book, that if we use sanctions too much without having a, well, a look and a think about their side effects and ripple effects, well, sanctions could well become ineffective, which I think is dangerous. And it's exactly about what you've just mentioned. It's about new financial channels. I don't think that sanctions are the reason why emerging countries and sanctioned countries are gradually developing such financial channels. I think it was to be expected that emerging countries would like to have their own financial channels, non-Western ones. But I think that the proliferation of sanctions is accelerating this phenomenon. And so we're seeing, for instance, de-dollarization. It's what you've mentioned. We're seeing that since 2020, the majority of bilateral trade between Russia and China is denominated in Russian rubles or Chinese renminbi, which in part shields Russia-China trade from US sanctions. The other thing is alternatives to SWIFT. SWIFT is like a global Rolodex of banks. There have been a lot of discussions about cutting off Russia from SWIFT. This hasn't happened. Only some Russian banks have been cut off from the network. But a number of countries, actually, this uh, happened after 2012 when SWIFT cut off Iranian banks from its network. Well, they took notes and they started to develop some alternative financial mechanisms. And here, China leads the way. Um, China has a mechanism called SIPS that would be a ready-made plan B just in case Chinese banks are completely cut off from SWIFT from one day to another. So that's a defensive thing against sanctions, but it's also an offensive capability because one day China could well say, well, if you want to access the Chinese market, 1.4 billion consumers, you need to use SIPs. And so it could cut off. Sorry, I'm not a total expert on these things, but I thought SIPs still worked off the, um, the, the Western financial system and in fact, um, it's kind of parasitic on SWIFT, so it's not necessarily an alternative to it. So actually, SWIFT helped to develop SIPs. There has been some assistance, but at the moment, SIPs would be able to work without Western financial channels. It already connects 1,300 banks around the world. All the European banks, all the American banks are connected to SIPs. And what China does is that it is building this system gradually. It's very hard because it's, it comes from a very low base. It's 100 times smaller than SWIFT. But China doesn't really care about that. What it wants to have is a plan B, just in case it's cut off from SWIFT entirely. And well, one day it could say, if you want to trade with China, you want to trade with us, you need to use SIPs. And then it would have the ability to cut off entire countries or companies from the Chinese market, which would obviously have big consequences. And finally, the third innovation, um, that's actually a very interesting one is chain, um, central bank digital currencies. And here again, China leads the way. 300 million Chinese people, probably more than that actually now, already use a digital renminbi. And this is completely immune to sanctions. And it also gives China surveillance capabilities. Um, so these are all innovations that could gradually, when taken together, they could decrease the effectiveness of sanctions. And so that begs the question, what would Western countries do if sanctions become completely ineffective? 
before we go on to that, I'd like to talk about, you know, Taiwan and China, because you just mentioned China in, in various different contexts. But even before we do that, maybe we can just stick with Russia for a little bit longer. Um, there have been lots of contradictory reports which have come out of all sorts of different institutions about the effectiveness of, of the sanctions. You talked a bit about the goals, but the other side of it is about compliance and, and who is actually uh, following it. And, you know, sanctions are always a cat and mouse game where people develop workarounds over time. I mean, what's your best sense of the, the picture in terms of the 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 compliance with the sanctions on Russia and where they're working, where they're not working, where are their holes? Well, I think that sanctions on Russia have become very important for Western companies. Um, I had some discussions with Western companies who told me, well, you know, in the past sanctions against Russia, well, yes, there were some sanctions, but we've really, really stepped up compliance these days following the new sanctions post-February 2022. Um, And I think this is also about reputational risk. I think that a number of companies are worried about doing business with Russia at the moment, not because it would be illegal. Sanctions do not prohibit everything with Moscow these days, but because of reputational risks that this would entail. Um, To answer your question, I think that about the effectiveness of sanctions on the Russian economy, I think the first thing that I would mention is we have to be very careful because Russia has made statistics a propaganda tool. And I think that we're seeing a lot uh, of disinformation coming from Russia saying sanctions don't work. Everything is going very well, you know, Uh, and the Russian economy is completely immune to sanctions, which to my mind, having lived in Russia for a while, those signal that something must be happening because otherwise I don't think that we would see uh, such claims coming from Russia that things are going very well. Um, I think if we take a look at the data, well, you know, the Russian economy is not in great shape. What we're seeing, uh, the latest data date back to November 2022, is that retail trade has dropped by 8% year on year, industrial production minus 2% year on year. Overall, that's a drop in GDP year on year again. So compared to November um, 2021 of around 4%. And then the question is, of course, um, about, well, smuggling routes or how sanctions um, can be circumvented. I think there's a question of scale here, to be honest. Um, I think that when you are Belarus or North Korea or Cuba, it is far easier to circumvent sanctions and to establish smuggling routes because their economies are far smaller. I think that when you're Russia, 140 million people, ninth largest economy in the world, it is much harder to get access to everything you need at the scale that you need. So of course, this is going to happen. There are friendly countries towards Russia, but I'm not entirely sure that Russia will be able to establish smuggling routes and to get sufficient quantities of everything that it needs. But 4% is not really very much, is it? I mean, it's much less than the effect of COVID. If you compare it with the Ukrainian economy, which has lost, you know, between a third and 40% of its uh, revenue, it's a pretty good outcome. It's only down by 4%. I'm not sure about that, because actually during the COVID pandemic, the Russian economy shrank by only 2%. So that's twice larger uh, than the recession of 2020. And I think that in any economy, a 4% recession is significant. I think that there had been some expectations here. There had been some declarations from European policymakers, actually, that we would see a total collapse of the Russian economy. I think seen from an economist's perspective, this 
didn't make much sense. Also because we know that sanctions are a tool that takes time. Their effect is gradual, cumulative, long-term. So I don't think that it was to be expected that the Russian economy would collapse. And also Russia benefited from higher energy prices. And this is due, of course, to the invasion of Ukraine. But this greatly cushioned um, the impact of sanctions. So I think that, I mean, to my mind, 4% is, is still significant. And as I said, also, the Russian economy will not rebound this year, 2023. And then the likeliest scenario is one of stagnation. So not, not a really great picture, I would say, for a Russian economy. Not a great picture, but you know, not a terrible picture considering, you know, we've all had the global financial crisis and COVID and things like that in recent memory, which have kind of similar order effects. So let's maybe switch to, to Taiwan then, because the big question people asked after the full scale invasion of Ukraine was whether this could provide a template for the Chinese to take back Taiwan. And the Chinese have certainly been studying the sanctions very carefully and looking at the idea of freezing central bank assets, cutting SWIFT, as you were saying earlier. But uh, obviously, the Chinese economy is fundamentally different from the Russian economy, both in terms of its scale, which is, you know, is vastly bigger than the, the Russian economy, but also its complexity and the extent to which it uh you know, it's integrated in, in our own economies. Uh, Russia was very integrated, but in one sector. And it's been quite painful to replace the oil and gas that we were buying from, from Russia. But it was a relatively surgical operation. That wouldn't be the case with China. Yeah, I completely agree. Actually, in my book, Backfire, I argued that financial sanctions wouldn't really be an option. Um, against China. I don't think that it would be realistic to impose a financial embargo against China because China is at the moment the second largest economy in the world. By the late, late 2030s, 2040, it will probably become the largest economy in the world. Um, and so imposing financial sanctions on China would have really huge global ripple effects. I think that the US would really be shooting itself in the foot. We would probably have a global recession, a global financial crisis um, again. But as you've said, China is still taking a look at what's happening in terms of sanctions against Russia. I think that the freeze of the reserves of the Central Bank of Russia was certainly a meaningful step unexpected. I think that the SWIFT question is interesting, but I think the most interesting question is what will happen this year in terms of U.S. secondary sanctions. We, there is a lot of uh, confusion about what U.S. secondary sanctions are. When the U.S. imposes secondary sanctions, it tells every company around the world, U.S. and foreign, that they don't have the right to do business with, say, Iran, and at the same time to do business with the US. They don't say it's forbidden to go to Iran. They say, if you want to go to Iran, then you can't access the US market and use the US dollar and use American banks and do anything in the US anymore. Um, at the moment, there aren't any secondary sanctions on, well, on Russia. Well, there are some very limited on the uh, Russian military sector, but these date back to before the invasion of Ukraine. And the big question here, and I think that that's the one that China is watching very carefully, is will the US go down that route? I would actually argue that no, that Europe doesn't depend on Russian energy anymore. I think that Putin has solved the question very well by 
cutting off gas supplies um, to Europe. I think that there is a possibility that we could see that U.S. secondary sanctions on Russia. But then the question is, how would the U.S. frame this so countries in the developing world, the global south, doesn't see it as something that goes against their interests? Because if the U.S. were to impose secondary sanctions on Russia, given Russia is a huge producer of energy, of gold, of fertilizers, of grains, of a lot of things, then it would again, create a spike in commodities prices. And of course, this would have ripple effects in developing countries. So there is a big question mark here. But I think that this is the one thing that Chinese companies and the Chinese leadership are really closely watching at the moment, secondary sanctions potentially. So not just Chinese companies. In your book, you you do a great job of illustrating how secondary sanctions annoyed European allies on Iran and some of the steps they took to get around them including setting up the not very successful Instex as a way of, of bypassing U.S. sanctions. And obviously there was the whole drama about Nord Stream 2 between Berlin and Washington, where Congress, rather than the administration, introduced sanctions against Germany. Um, why do you think that they haven't introduced secondary sanctions? What do you think the kind of American lessons have been from those two episodes, uh, Iran and Stream 2? Yes, exactly. I discussed these two examples in the book at length because my view is that when there are cracks in the transatlantic relationship, so for instance, around the Nord Stream 2 saga, when we heard some US Congress uh, men ask for sanctions against German port stevedores in relation uh, with the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, um, or when European companies have to leave Iran after the US exited the nuclear deal in 2018, it was a really bizarre situation because the EU was still formally in the deal and the EU was telling its companies, please stay in Tehran, stay in Iran, because they wanted to show Tehran that Iran had, uh, well, that it would be beneficial um, to Iran to remain in the deal. But on the other end, there was the US saying, if you stay in Iran, we will impose secondary sanctions on you. And so all European companies left the Iranian market. It was a no-brainer, like choose between the US market and the Iranian market. Um, and I think that when there are such tensions, and I think that these sometimes have been dismissed or not, take, not taken into account from the American side, these are cracks in the transatlantic relationship and they only benefit countries under sanctions, such as Russia. For instance, I'm pretty sure Russia rejoiced, well, the Kremlin and Vladimir Putin rejoiced every time he saw um, that there were disagreements between the US and the EU over the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline. What is interesting, by the way, is that there were a lot of debates within the EU about whether it was a good idea to build a new pipeline between Russia and Germany. And in hindsight, it was probably not a great idea. But there was a consensus, even among those who opposed building the pipeline, that the US was taking things one step too far uh, by imposing sanctions on a European, well, European-Russian project, um, essentially. And so I think that this is very interesting because we've seen changes um, since First, the uh, well, the Biden administration. I think there has been much more concern and interest in the Biden administration about the stances of the European Union and tensions regarding extraterritorial secondary sanctions from the US. That's a good good sign from the European Union perspective. And then, following the invasion of Ukraine, I think that we've seen very solid transatlantic unity on sanctions between both sides of the Atlantic, which is very, very positive. However, I think that there is a new dispute um, that is roiling 
and it is about export controls. And I'm sure that we will discuss that if you want to discuss Taiwan, uh, because the U.S. is now imposing export controls on U.S. semiconductor technology exports to China. What does that mean? Well, essentially, it is American companies, as I discuss in the book, that control the technology to design semiconductors. It's three American companies that design 99% of semiconductors globally. And so what the U.S. is doing is it is saying we are restricting the export of this technology to Chinese companies because the U.S. wants to curb China's technological advances in the field of semiconductors, tiny electronic components present everywhere. And I think that there's a lot of unease in the European Union about these new export controls. They're a bit like secondary sanctions. European companies have to comply with them if they want to retain access to the U.S. market. But there's a lot of questions um, in the European Union um, about where that leaves uh, European foreign policy and strategic interests. So I think that this is uh, a concern for the coming years and possibly decades. So listeners particularly interested in that, you should go back to an earlier episode on the chip wars, which my colleague Janka Attel presented recently. But essentially what you seem to be implying is that, that China is just too central to the global economy to be given the, the Russian treatment that the US might have kind of been moving towards the, the peak of its uh, traditional kind of financial based sanctions. But that's a very Western centric way of looking at things. If we look into the future, could you see China itself, not just proofing itself against American sanctions, but starting to use sanctions uh, in an equally extensive way? I mean, we've seen some instances of, of Chinese sanctions on rare earths against Japan, for example, against the Philippines um, over maritime disputes. Often these sanctions are sort of hidden as phytosanitary uh, or customs controls going wrong or against Lithuania. Sometimes uh, the secondary sanctions against Lithuania were done in a very informal way rather than being formally declared. Are we going to see a world where sanctions is, is less a kind of Western preserve and more something that we find ourselves on the receiving end of? Yes, absolutely. Uh, that's essentially um, the view that I discuss in the conclusion of the book. I think that, as you've put it, I think the time of sanctions, peak sanctions, um, has passed probably because of what we've discussed, these new financial innovations that could make sanctions ineffective. And at the same time, China's rise and China's view that it has the right to use sanctions to advance its interests. And we've seen actually quite a few interesting steps. So you've mentioned rare earths, for instance. China controls about 80% of the global deposits of rare earths. But rare earths are critical to build semiconductors. So China could say, well, okay, you want to curb our access to US semiconductor technology? Okay, no problem, but we'll curb your access to rare earths. And China did that once uh, with Japan, for instance. And that was a very significant and difficult moment for Japanese companies. We've seen also steps um, from China to build some legislation that would allow China to retaliate um, against sanctions, the non-reliable entity list. So far, in terms of implementation, this isn't happening very much. But I would think that in a few years, at China's economy, cloud rises, you know, China will be more and more confident that it can do that. And as we've discussed, you know, if one day China says you need to use SIPs, so the Chinese alternative to SWIFT, to do trade with the Chinese market, well, it could mean that China could say, okay, but companies from country XYZ, well, you can't access the Chinese market. 
1.4 billion people. That's that's significant. And actually, that's, to my mind, the problem with the decoupling narrative. We haven't said that word yet in our conversation, but I think there's a lot of discussion in the US about decoupling. Interestingly, American companies are worried about decoupling plans, you know, and decoupling is about completely cutting economic ties between the US and China. And why are they worried? Well, because it would also entail losing access to the Chinese market for them. So that would entail a loss in revenues, and that could be very significant, especially in the tech sector. You know, we were talking about semiconductors. Semiconductor companies, they need to invest a lot of money in research and development. But if they lose access to a Chinese market, loss in revenues, maybe they wouldn't be able to finance these R&D expenses anymore. And so Chinese companies could catch up even more easily, as you've mentioned, China will double down on sanctions proofing and on, well, strategic autonomy, on having its own technology, et cetera, et cetera. But if at the same time, American companies struggle to finance R&D, well, that could be a problem. And I was actually taking a look at the public financing for semiconductor uh, R&D in China and the US and Chinese financing, public financing is 30 times higher than US financing for semiconductors. So we, we're just not talking about the same amounts. It's it's a completely different scale. And so to my mind, what that means is that China will make progress in that field. And one day, yes, it could very well use sanctions in the way that the US or Western countries have been using sanctions in the past. And we could end up in a very fragmented world, which obviously would be a completely different world to operate in for Western diplomats and, and democracies great that's all we got time for today we've got one thing left to do on this podcast which is our bookshelf segment obviously everyone should buy a copy of batfire how sanctions reshape the world against u.s interests but what's on your bookshelf at the moment i get well at the moment i'm reading a book called what you have heard is true um, by caroline forche and it's about the civil war in el salvador uh caroline forche was a, a young uh, american woman at the time and she recounts uh her story and she was on the ground and it's it's really a great book um and over christmas i read a fantastic book from christopher leonard um called coke land it's about the Coke empire from Charles Coke. Um, I assume a lot of people won't know this name, uh, but it's actually um, an American private business empire and their revenues are higher than those of Goldman Sachs, Facebook and US Steel combined. So that was a really, really interesting read. Um, and finally, one book that I read recently and that I really liked um, it's about Northern Ireland during the Troubles and the IRA, etc. It's called Say Nothing by Patrick Radden Keefe. And it's a great, great story um, of everything that happened in Northern Ireland in actually fairly modern history. Um, and it, I found it was very good. I highly recommend it. Great. You've got a very full bookshelf there. If you've enjoyed listening to us, please do head to whatever platform to listen to us on and subscribe to the podcast. And while you're there be wonderful if you could also give us a positive review and a five-star rating because it will help bring other people to the podcast. We'll put links up to all the publications that we mentioned on our website at ecfr.eu slash podcast. But for now, it's goodbye. The researcher of this podcast was Anand Sundar and the editor of this episode is Marlene Nurkhi.